0: Father, we come today, on this most special of days, reminded that nothing changes because because Christ rose from the grave. It doesn't matter what trouble we are going through personally, what crisis our world is undergoing globally, that which is ultimately true has remained the same, and that is Christ Jesus rose from the dead. Thank you for the opportunity to celebrate this today, and it's in the name of the risen Savior Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. It's good to have you with us today, those who are members of Blue Valley Baptist Church, also those of you who are guests. I hope you appreciate how much Planning goes into doing what we are doing virtually for worship service on this Easter Sunday in particular. I know that many of you have already probably been blown away at the opportunity that we had to hear from uh, people uh, in a choir from both campuses, and you think, well, man, we ought to do that every week. Well, Jeremy Arbery, who put that together, has about 60 or 70 hours invested in that three-and-a-half-minute song, so you will pardon him if he doesn't want to do that again anytime uh, super soon. And then also, one of the things that uh, Pastor John has done diligently in order for us to comply... With the governor's order that churches are not exempt from the ten-person gathering rule, uh, rule is is that he's he's made it possible for us to kind of stage our arrival. So when Pastor Darren left this room uh, a little bit ago, I left my car, came inside, and we have been able to maintain that uh, ten-person or less rule here in this room. Uh, just a lot. Of planning going into all of this. And if you get an opportunity to share a word of thanks to anybody on our worship team, Pastor John, Jeremy, anybody, make sure you send that out to them because I know that they would really appreciate it. I've been unable, utterly incapable of resisting a James Bond movie since I was a little boy. I've seen every one of them. In fact, people who have participated with me in Zoom meetings or seen videos that I have shot from my home office uh, during this stay-at-home order have noted that I have an autographed picture of Daniel Craig as James Bond right over my shoulder in almost everything that I record. And I think that part of the fascination for me uh, with these movies are the high-tech gadgets that Bond always seems to have, things that, that appear or but have some kind of ultimate purpose. So you have, for instance, an umbrella that closes and impales the carrier. If it gets wet, you have exploding toothpaste. Uh, you have exploding briefcases. Come to think of it, um, in the bond world of gadgetry, there are a lot of things that explode. But uh, one of my favorite scenes is about something that really is just very, very ordinary. It came in the last movie, Spectre, and Bond is being shown by Q this amazing car, typical Bond car, very fast, bulletproof, has all kinds of secrets up its sleeve that then Q in showing it to Bond says it was meant for you, but you can't have it because of some trouble that Bond had found himself to be in. And he said, but you can have this, and he hands him a wristwatch. And Bond is very disgusted, and he looks at it, and he said, does it do anything? And Q says, it tells the time. Well, every year, the calendar hands us Easter, and most of us who would tune in for something like this Know what it is. It is the date on the Christian calendar where Christians worldwide celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. We know what Easter is, but does it do anything more than simply tell us it's spring? Uh, Tell us the time. Well, we're going to think about that today as we find 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in your copy of God's Word. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But before we address what Easter does, uh, more than just tell the time, we need to address the elephant in the room. And here it is. Did it really happen? I mean, was there a day in history where a man who had been crucified a few days earlier rose bodily out of a grave. There's no reason to think about what Easter does if it is nothing more than a myth. And the idea that Easter is nothing more than a myth is as old as that first Easter morning. But the historical argument, not the biblical argument, which which makes sense as you would expect, but the historical argument... That Christ really did rise from the grave that first Easter morning is a compelling argument there's a Christian pastor um, academic author, professor who has in the in the past ten years gone home to be with the Lord named John R.W Stott, probably Dr. Stott, one of the, the foremost Christian thinkers in the 20th century, and he has written a book called Basic Christianity where he he lays out the historical argument for the resurrection of Christ. I want to share that with you this morning because it leads in to what we're going to talk about. First, the, the first bit of evidence that he offers historically that uh, the resurrection really happened was that the tomb was empty. And the reason for its emptiness were debated from the get-go on Easter. But what was never debated was that the tomb was empty. The, the key piece of evidence here is the reaction of the Jewish authorities. Almost immediately, they began to circulate the explanation for what had really happened, kind of offer a conspiracy theory. Uh, now there's no need for an alternate explanation. That, that why the tomb is empty if the tomb wasn't really empty. All they would need to do is have this very public event where they would open the tomb themselves and display the body of Christ. And if they had been able to do that, they would have because it would have killed Christianity in its infancy. But they couldn't because it was empty. The body was not there. Second, Stott points out that Jesus was seen. And we, of course, have the testimony of the four biblical books called uh, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which each give us a perspective on that first Easter morning. But we also have the testimony of others in the early church. The person who wrote 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, a man named Paul, actually writes about the witness of the early church in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 3. He says, "...for I delivered... To you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture, and then here He goes, and that He appeared to Cephas, which is a reference to Peter, and then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, the brother of Jesus, then to all the apostles, and then note this. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So there was this substantial body of evidence that many people saw something, and most at the time of Paul's writings were still alive to confirm, yes indeed, after Christ was said to have been risen from the dead, we saw something. But the question is, did they see Jesus? And the arguments that it wasn't tend to congregate around the idea that all of these people were hallucinating. And that makes sense. I mean, the one that they loved, the one that they had followed, the one they had invested all of this hope in had been crucified. And so the notion that he wasn't really dead would have been a very appealing to a lot of people, except for Paul. Paul the one to whom jesus lastly appeared is one untimely born a few years after all of this would have taken place he was he was uh, kind of brought onto the scene paul who was was wickedly against the church who was devoting his entire life to rooting out the lie the myth that jesus rose from the grave on a dime changed his tune and began to be the one who was the most vocal advocate for the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Why did he do that? What happened? He saw Jesus and his life was changed. Paul wasn't hallucinating. He didn't ever want to see a risen Jesus and yet when he did, it changed his life which re- leads to the third bit of evidence that Stott points out in his book and that is the disciples were changed. You know, the most popular argument in those first days of Easter, the conspiracy theory put out by those who had a vested interest in keeping things at the status quo, the Jewish leadership, was that the disciples stole the body. But is it possible that, that these, these people who are frankly not portrayed in a, an incredible light in the four Gospels that reflect for us the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, would these men have been able to maintain a lie to the point of suffering, to the point of imprisonment, to the point of death? Every one of them did, and not one of them caved. Does it make sense that men who were propagating a lie, who had nothing to gain financially from this, would would have kept this lie alive up to the point of their own crucifixions? It doesn't make any sense at all. In fact, one of the most compelling bits of evidence that something really did happen, that Jesus did rise from the grave all those years ago was that the disciples' lives were changed. So the historical evidence that Christ really did rise from the dead is substantial and that's why Paul says this in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, after having laid the evidence out that Christ Christ did rise from the dead, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And this causes him to begin to reflect on what Easter does, on what the resurrection provides. First, the resurrection provides a future promise. Now, you probably noticed an odd word, at least to our modern eyes and ears, in that verse that I read just a moment ago. It's the word first fruits. But the idea behind the word first fruits is simple. Paul is saying that Jesus was the first to be resurrected, the first to be raised from the dead, and therefore is representative of a harvest of resurrections to come. So the resurrection provides for us the future promise that perhaps someday death will not have the final say over us. Why is that? Look at verse 21. But as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now that last verse is pretty clear. Paul is arguing here, as he does in Romans, that that, that death came into our human nature through the human race, through Adam's sin, something that is known as an original sin. So the idea is something like this. Adam's sin was kind of a first fruit of sin to come. Adam's death was kind of a first fruit of, of death to come. There was a harvest of sin, and there was a harvest of death that came from the sin of Adam. But, he argues here, there is a, a harvest of resurrections, there is a harvest of life to come from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The only difference is that every person who has ever been born is born guilty because of Adam's sin, that is, original sin. Not everyone, however will be given eternal life by Christ's resurrection. Here's where we see that. Look at verse 23. But each in his own order, speaking of these resurrections, Christ the first fruits, then at His coming, those who belong to Christ. Paul is saying that Christ's resurrection had to come first, that it had to come in order. His was the first of a harvest harvest to come, that there is a resurrection to come. But note that he says in verse 23, a resurrection of those who belong to Christ. All are born guilty But only those who have surrendered their lives to Jesus as Savior and Lord will get the experience of their own resurrection, their own eternal life that the resurrection of Jesus provides. That is the future promise of the resurrection. That is part of what Easter does. It shows us the possibility of death not being the final word on us. The next thing that Easter does, though, as Paul continues to discuss about discuss it, is that it provides us a present perspective. And by that, I mean this. This makes sense, I think. If we have given our lives to Christ and live our lives on the future hope of a life that never ends, it will literally change everything everything about how we view the world, and it is this point that Paul is making in verse 24. Back in verse 23, Paul had indicated that the full experience of our own resurrection wouldn't be realized until Christ returns, and then he continues with that in verse 24 when he says, then comes the end when Christ returns, when He delivers the kingdom to God, the Father. After destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. What do those words mean? Well, Paul has made it clear that resurrection, Christ's triumph over death, is our future it is something that we can anticipate in the future, our bodily resurrection at the return of Christ. But our present experience until that time will be this, there will be struggles and there will be heartache and there will be trial and there will be death. This is what Paul is referring to as the ongoing work of subjugation of the world that Christ is currently operating by in the world in which we live. Christ will continue to reign until ultimately all of the enemies of God are completely defeated. And this is what it means when he speaks of a resurrection to come. In, in the meantime, in this last 2,000 years, there, there has been a gathering of Christ. To himself the followers and in doing so he is waging war against sin and he is waging war on the power of death one life at a time by the power of his cross and these people The church who are redeemed, who live in the hope of a future resurrection from the dead, will continue to live in a world where this battle is ongoing but whose outcome is certain. And that will change their perspective on everything. They will look at the world in which we live and see so much wrong and not question, not question God's goodness, not question whether or not God truly is is in love with His people and, and active in the world in which we live. Instead, they will say this will not always be so because of the guarantee of a risen Savior. Everything that troubles me in this world will one day be gone for good. The best is yet to come. That's the perspective, the present perspective of those who put their hope in Easter. And then finally, here's what Easter does. It provides an eternal peace, an eternal peace. Look at verse 27. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. Now He's speaking here, God the Father has put all things in subjection under the feet of of his son Jesus, so there is is a, a way in which Christ is acting as as God the Father's representative in exacting his rule in the world and universe in which we live. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he accepted who put all things in subjection under him. In other words. Christ was not uh, living in this world, subjected to uh, the God, inferior to God the Father in any way. He's carrying out His role. And then in verse 28 it says, When all things are subjected to Him, in other words, when Christ, by the power of the cross and the power of His resurrected life, have subjected all things then the son himself will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him in other words his mission will be complete he will as we talked about Friday night if you watched our devotion he will be able to finally fully proclaim everything is finished, the work that God has given me is fully complete, and he will present a redeemed world to God the Father who will rule and reign, and then God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit come together, and that's what he means when he says all things put into subjection under him that God may be all in all. Now, folks, I get those words can be confusing, but the gist is this. God the Father gave God the Son a job to defeat the rule and reign of sin in our world. And when that has finally been finished, as He is drawn in followers, drawn in a kingdom to the Father by the work, the finished work of Christ, God the Son will take His place at the side of God the Father that God may be all in all, meaning that God will reign unchallenged for eternity." Now, there's a very practical benefit to all of this right now for us. In light of this pandemic that has locked us in our homes and caused us to be unable to gather physically for worship on this most special day of the year, it would be very easy for us to look around at all of the uncertainty and the rising infection rates and the rising death toll and to think... This is just never going to end. But it will. Christ rose from the dead. And in doing so, he established a beachhead for a kingdom that will never end in a world that was sick with sin. And right now, he is defeating the power of sin and he is defeating the power of death one life at a time. Forty-three Easter Sundays ago... He defeated the power of sin and the power of death in my life. Yet in the years that have transpired since then, I've had joys unspeakable, trials unexpected, heartache unsoothable. In the years since, I've, I've shed the inbred nature to rebel against God and sin in some areas of my life while letting sin remain entrenched in other areas of my life. So why do I do this? Why do I give my life to this? Why do I make this effort? Why do the people who have made this this stream possible for you? Go to all of this effort? If there's all of this, all of this sin still that we have to fight, and all of this, all of this death that we have to endure, and, and all of this heartache that goes in, into the world in which we live, we do it because there will come a day when we will suffer no more and will sin no more and will die no more. And it's all because Jesus rose from the dead. That's what the resurrection provides for us. And that is what Easter does. I, I get that there may be many who are watching this morning who maybe don't have that kind of confidence in a risen Savior. This has been an idea that you have celebrated seasonally, Easter, Christmas, Christmas, Easter, But you've never really grasped the fact that this does something. That if it really happened, it changes everything. And you're starting to think about that right now. If that's the case, please, when we are done, email justask at bluevalleybaptist.org. Just ask at bluevalleybaptist.org. And someone will be in contact with you to talk about this Jesus who rose. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. And Father, I know That the world in which you are in right now, to many of our eyes, is as bleak as it's ever been. There are many people, they've voiced it to me, feel like they're living in a science fiction movie. And yet it's our reality. And if we allow ourselves to think about it very long, Father, it's but by a, a bit of genetic code that has kept this thing that has... A high infection rate from also having a high mortality rate because father if if it did this would be an extinction level event and those things can keep people awake at night but father there are many listening to my voice who rest securely that whatever happens, it pales into the comparison to the truth that Jesus rose from the dead. And because of that, I have a future hope that death will not be the end of me. I have a present perspective that this too shall pass. And I, Father, am able to look forward in, in, in it, to an in, eternal experience where you are all in all and your rule and reign is no longer challenged, and all all suffering is over, and all sin is over, and all death is over. If people listening to my voice don't have that hope today, help them reach out so that we can share the good news with them that Jesus rose. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.